Father, long ago your words created worlds. And I just pray today that it will be your words with Toby. And that those words will show us the world as you see it. And most of all, we will see you as, as you should be seen. And may you be with us. May you open our eyes and open all of our senses to your words today. You'll notice a different tone and the service and the music and all these minor keys and repentant type things. It doesn't sound much like celebration church sometimes during this season, but it's one of the few things here that's not an accident. Because today is the first Sunday in Lent, and it's a, it's a time we do things a little different, and we think things a little different. We use this time to reflect. We think about our great need for God and how we fall short so easily and so quickly and so often. We fall short of our own standards. And certainly we fall short of God's standards. And part of that, part of the reason we fall short is how we handle or don't handle temptation. How do you handle temptation? How do you handle testing? Do you have a strategy For when you're in a time of testing, when you're in a time of temptation, we're all subject to it. Uh, Why not have a plan in place? I mean, we have, well, some of us have financial plans in place, right? We have medical plans in place, whether we like it or not. Uh, However we get it, uh, why not have temptation planning in place? A, A system that you can go through when you're in that kind of trial, Maybe an exit strategy. You know, in the event of a temptation, uh, this is what you do in an emergency landing so that you can survive. What position do you get in for the crash or even to avoid the crash? If we don't have a good temptation plan in place, if uh, in the event that that kind of an emergency comes, we're probably going to miss the lighted signs that will help us. Maybe land safely. Anyway, Lent is a time that we look at this and we look at it for 40 days. We think about sin and prepare ourselves for that kind of thing. And um, just as an aside, the 40 days, that, that's a nice number. It's a, it's a nice number, 40. And, it, and it's a number that pops up in Scripture a lot. And it, and it usually, um, well, maybe not usually, but often it, it, it appears when... Things that are new are happening or in preparation for something new is about to begin. So we have all kinds of 40s in the Bible and days or years. Significant sometimes regarding preparation for new things. So for instance, with Noah, rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And after 40 days, Noah opened the window that he had made in the ark. And so, 40 days of rain, he opened the window, just like we're preparing for 40 days uh, for when Jesus uh, walks out of the open tomb. So that's our 40 days. Uh, Joseph uh, 
was not so lucky as to walk out of his tomb, at least not yet. When he died, uh, the Egyptians took a full 40 days to embalm him. Moses prepped for his whole new mission for 40 years. He, I mean, he was called into pastoral ministry, and so those of us who are in it know that it's useful to know how to shepherd stinky sheep. No, I didn't say that. But he had to learn that skill. For 40 years he had to learn that. 40 years as a shepherd. And so in Acts 7 it says, After 40 years had passed, then the angel appeared to Moses in a flame in a burning bush near the desert in Sinai. And then, and then Moses, God takes him a little while, he takes him to uh, the top of Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. He checks into Hotel Sinai where he meets with God. And then it says that Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And so I guess when the food bill came at checkout after that time up there, it was like a zero. He saved on that. Joshua and Caleb, they went on a 40-day exploration, and that was all about preparation for this new land that they were going to take over, that God had just waiting for them. He gave them a 40-day look-see. A little taste-and-see event. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. And a couple guys said, yeah, it's just like you said. It's it's a fantastic place. But that was two. And then the other ten said, nah, nah, it is good, but we can't take it. It's just a little too big for us to take. And God was not happy with that negativity that day. And so he said, so here's the deal, guys. For every day that you explored this land I was going to give you, I'm going to give you a year walking in the wilderness. And so they did. For 40 years they were there. And for 40 years they ate the exact same meal. Manna. Another 40. Preparing them again to go into the promised land. Sometimes uh, times of peace lasted for 40 years. Like in Judges, uh, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Or times of war could last for 40 years too, Judges 13. Sometimes, uh, at one time anyway, in Israel's history, they got stuck with a bad priest for 40 years. Eli, 1 Samuel 4, 18, until... One day he fell backwards off his chair and broke his neck because he was old and fat, it says. And sometimes threats could last for 40 days. The Philistines came forward in 1 Samuel 17 every morning and every evening for 40 days. But sometimes good guys ruled. David ruled for 40 years. And then his son, Solomon, ruled for 40 And Joash ruled for 40. And Jonah was given a Lenten message. And he said to the city, he was said, you got 40 days to repent. I'm giving you 40 days. So it's like we have our 40 days too. Some of us, uh, God is much more gracious to us than that. I mean, some of us are on our 40th year and we still haven't got around to saying I'm sorry about some things or turning from some things. But God gave them 40 days. Elijah, he was afraid. 
He thought his neck was going to be chopped or hung or burned or whatever, and he ran for cover for 40 days. How's that for a Lenten uh, time of preparation? He ran for 40 days south. I don't know where that would put me, but that would put me about Richmond. And so, so he gets down to where he is. He's, he's down at this mountain called Horeb, and, and God says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, really, basically he's saying, Why have you been running for 40 days? I mean, come on. So he's chewing him out. That's another sermon for another day. But today, we can, well, we can maybe think about some of us have huge fears in our lives. And and maybe God says to us, What are you doing here? What are you running from? But today, we want to think about Jesus. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, guess what? He was hungry, it says. Well, the gospel tells us that Jesus grew up as a country boy. He grew up in the sticks. He grew up in a place called Galilee. And and even though that he was in this little place, he came with an incredible mission uh, to save the world. And he came with all the firepower needed to do that. He had every tool available to him. And so you would think that he would come and he would uh, do big stuff. You know, that he would land and, uh, let's see, okay, oh, there's disease. I'm going to eradicate that. Earthquakes, we're done with earthquakes. And all of this, he would do the big stuff, you know. No more tsunamis. Jesus is here. But when he shows up, at least as an adult, he just starts doing small, sometimes really small little things. Like getting baptized. How long does it take to get baptized? A second? Two? Five? If you stay under the water for a while? I'm not sure how John did it. So that was the first thing he did, basically, that we really know of as as an adult. Anyway, he, he gets dunked by somebody, and then that's not so big. But, the, but, but right after that, something a little bigger happens. The Spirit descends on him. Like a pigeon, it says, could be translated. So the Spirit of God comes on him. So here's this carpenter. He grows up in the sticks. He gets baptized. He's not really ready to go. Uh, He doesn't need to be baptized, but he does it to fulfill righteousness. And then the Spirit falls on him, and now he's got to be ready. He's got everything he needs. He has the full anointing of heaven on him. And so you would think that He's ready to wield some serious influence. He came to save. So what's he going to do with his first 40 days in office? What do you think? Remember Romney. Here's his little plan. I I couldn't come up with his first 40 days, but I did find what he was going to do on his first day. Here's what he's going to do, was going to do. Immediate approval to construct the Keystone Pipeline. Then, executive orders to halt implementation of Obamacare. Then he was going to introduce tax cuts for job creators. Then he's going to have morning coffee. Then, uh, deficit reduction, lunch. Then he's going to end Obama's era of big government. Then, by afternoon tea, he's going to tell China to play by the rules. And then, before dinner, he is going to repeal 
job-killing regulations. And that's just Romney. I would have liked to have seen all those things, frankly, but here's what Gingrich had to say, and this was what he was going to do on his first day. He said this, By the end of the first day, about the time President Obama arrives back in Chicago, we will have dismantled about 40% of his government. Big plans. Big leadership. But what about Jesus? He's got the full backing of all of heaven. And what does he do? He doesn't even go to the Capitol. He doesn't even have a press conference. He doesn't even go to the crowds. He goes in the exact opposite direction of any place that anyone would go to do anything big. He heads to where there's no people at all. He goes into the desert. It's like, what a waste of a first day, or let alone a first 40 days in office. In fact, he only has two face-to-face meetings in all of 40 days. One is with Satan, the devil meets him, and another, we hear that he meets with some angels. That's it. That's all he does. That's all we know. But in his first 40 days in office, it's kind of like the first 40 days maybe of Adam and Eve. They met the same guy. Maybe in the first 40 days. They met Satan and uh, Satan talked to him and persuaded him into a few things and Satan wins. But not in Jesus' life, in his encounter with Satan, we learn in our text this morning that, no, Jesus won that little conversation. He had three of them. And it turns out that it was key in his life. John Milton writes about this in his sequel to Paradise Lost. He, he says that it was, it was so key in Jesus' life. He thinks even that it was more key than the cross in actually how his life unfolded. The temptation, that is. What's the big deal with the temptations Jesus faced anyway? And we'll look at them in a minute or so. I mean, what's the big deal if he would turn the bread, a stone, into bread? I mean, after all, he, he would feed 5,000 and he would feed 3,000. What's, what's wrong with making a little lunch? What's wrong with making a little whole wheat bread out of a rock? After 40 days, you'd think he deserved a nice meal. Why wouldn't he do it? What's the big deal of throwing himself off the temple? Satan said, throw yourself off the temple. After all, the angel says, well, guard uh, the Christ. What's the big deal? I mean, later he would, he would get all kinds of scrapes. I mean, even Incredible Hulk can fall out of a plane and his heart rate gets going so fast before he hits the ground, he and then he comes in, he's ready for a fight. I mean, what's the big deal? And he still accomplished his mission. What's up with Jesus? Well, what's going on, it's not easy to know, but Philip Yancey in his book says this, and the Jesus I never knew. He tells of Malcolm Mugridge while he's filming a documentary. He writes this on the temptation. He says, curiously enough, just at the right moment to begin filming when the shadows were long enough and the light not too weak, I happened to notice nearby a whole expanse of stones, all identical and looking uncommonly like loaves, well-baked and brown. How easy for Jesus to have turned these stones into edible ones. And as later, he turned water into wine at a wedding feast. And after all, why not? Roman authorities distributed free bread to promote Caesar's kingdom, and Jesus could do the same to promote his. 
Jesus had but just given a nod of agreement and he could have constructed Christendom, not on four shaky gospels and a defeated man nailed on a cross, but on basis of sound socioeconomic planning and principles. Every utopia could have been brought to pass. Every hope could have been realized. And every dream made to come true. What a benefactor then Jesus would have been. Acclaimed equally in the London School of Economics, in the Harvard Business School, a statue in Parliament Square, and an even bigger one on Capitol Hill, and maybe even in Red Square. Instead, he turned the offer down on the ground that only God should be worshipped. What Muggeridge is asking is, why wasn't Jesus like we might expect him to be? Why wouldn't he do the stuff? Why, why did he show up to just do a little bit of that and a little bit of that and basically just to suffer? I mean, he's saying, what's up with that? Satan offered him an easy way and Jesus said, no thanks. I don't really want to bail out. I don't want a quick way to the top. Satan yelled to him again, he's what, you know, like he did in the desert, you know, when he's up on the cross. Why don't you just, someone from the crowd yells, uh, why don't you just come down from the cross and save yourself? Why don't you do it the easy way? And Jesus said, no, I, he knew that if he took the easy way, then we couldn't make it. No thanks, no bailout. Yancey writes that uh, if he saved himself, he could not save others. And Jesus was a strange leader in another way. He didn't blow people away with his power. He didn't take the world by force. He wouldn't even take a single meal with Satan. He would eat with sinners and he could relate to them. But he wouldn't eat with the devil. I've spent a little time in China and... Um, they're famous for showing their strength. I was kind of impressed. Like the North Koreans, they have these tanks and all these parades and show all their firepower. And, and they, they, they control everything they can. Everything that is possible to control, they, they try to do it. They control the airwaves. One of my best friends uh, in China... I asked him what his job in the government was, and he said, well, I sit at a desk all night, and if the phone rings in the morning and says, kill that story, I kill it, and it never gets out anywhere. It's like, oh, yeah, we don't have that job, I don't think. Maybe we do. I don't know. We, we probably do, actually, now that I think about it. But anyway, uh, they control the borders. And I asked one Chinese, why, why do they do that? Why don't they let you out? He says, because our government loves us so much, they don't want anything to happen to us out there. So that's nice. They control minds. Uh, you ask them what happened in the last Congress. They will tell you verbatim, a whole class, word for word, exactly what they're supposed to say. They tell you the number of children you can have born in your family. They tell you the days that you can drive your car. They, they control the days that you can cook or not cook. We were there at one time, no cooking allowed in Beijing for two weeks because uh, the Olympic Committee was going to come and examine the air quality. And people were a little hot about that. They govern with an iron hand and with fear. And they persuade the people that they are really keeping them safe. 
And they say the main reason for all the stuff that we do is because the worst thing to happen is to have chaos and we are for stability. If China can be stable, then you can have a good life. So they rule by fear, they rule by the promise of a stable government, and then the promise that the government is the best way to prosperity. Some of us want that from Jesus. We want security. And, and we want stuff. And, and sometimes in Lent, I think of the bad stuff in my life. I don't know if you do. And I set aside extra time to ask for him to fix it. Today would be best. Tomorrow is second best. The day after tomorrow is way too long. That's way too far out there for me. And because we focus on negative things, sort of, the truth during Lent, we... We want God to take control of our lives. We do. I've kind of messed up here and there. Would you kind of take over for me, Lord? Because I believe in the historic confession. I do not belong to myself. I don't belong to myself in this life. I don't belong to myself in death. And I don't belong to myself in the life to come. But we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we confess. And so we ask him to take over and even sometimes to take over our will. But does he? Jesus on Palm Sunday, when we'll be celebrating that soon, uh, he wept when he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. But anyway, after Jesus was... Tested. The way he ran his administration, so to speak, was not like a dictator would. He, he didn't force anyone to do anything. That's not how he did it. He, he didn't push people around, and he won't push you around either. That's not his style. He, he won't make you do stuff. He, he won't push any people around. And, and by the way, he couldn't be pushed around either. Satan couldn't push him around, and that's in our story today. Jesus was not pushy. He led by suggestion. There was no hard sell. There was no waterboarding. There was no twisting of people's arms. He just kind of... He didn't even need 12 guidos to get his work done. He, he needed 12 unpushy guys to put out the word. He just, he just spelled out consequences. That's all, just kind of almost matter of fact. Like, oh, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we pour in your lap. For the measure you use, that's what's going to be measured to you. And just moving on. That's all. Or at the end of the book, Behold, I'm coming soon, my reward's with me. I'll give to everyone according to what he's done. Just thought you should know. That's the way it is. That's the way it's going to be. No pushing, no shoving. No, uh, no uh, Tokyo subway approach. Oh, and he says, uh, He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Just FYI, I thought you'd like to know that ahead of time might be helpful. And when he was confronted with temptation, he, he handled it also in an easy way. 
And the temp- temptation, basically, I mean, basically, he just had this most simple way, and that's what I ask you, what's your strategy? And we're just going to look at Jesus' strategy for a minute. His strategy was really easy. He got out of temptation. He passed all of his tests in a, in a really, really easy way. Maybe we can look at it in, how about Luke 4? Satan would say something to him like, how about you do this? And he says, ah, nah. It's written, man doesn't live on bread alone. I read Deuteronomy 8.3, he could tell Satan. No, I don't want to do that. And the Bible says, no, see ya. And then, uh, then he's asked by Satan to worship him, and what's his strategy? And he'll give him everything. He says, nah, it's written. Oh, there he goes, quoting the Bible again. It's written. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Goodbye. Same boring approach. He just... Temptation comes and just opens up his scroll and says, Nah. Bible says, "Uh Uh-uh. It says, uh, Why don't you just throw yourself off this building? That would be a really cool stunt. And Jesus says, Nah. The Bible says, It says, Do not put the Lord to the test. And then it says the devil gave up and left him for an opportune time. That's how Jesus faced temptation. He just quoted the Bible. That's it. As far as I know, that's the only way he handled it. As far as Scripture is, that, that's, that was his strategy. That was his emergency plan in the event that he makes Satan face-to-face he would just quote the Bible. Just like my son, he, he, he won't... Well, he kind of does quote the Bible, but sometimes he quotes me. It wasn't too long ago that he came home with a tattoo. That's a lot, saying a lot for a five-year-old, and I wasn't pleased. But it was a little rubble. I don't know how it got on his arm, but he went to the treasure box at school and... Thought it would be nice to come home with a tat. He was pretty proud of it, and I was not too happy. And uh, it was hard to get that thing off. Anyway, his friends all thought it was cool. And uh, the next time, he, he has uh, they get paws, and he's got like, I don't know how many paws, and every day he's on green. Whatever, he gets to go to the treasure box. I think it's on Fridays. And everyone said, hey, oh, get a tattoo again. He said, no, can't. Why not? Dad said no. End of discussion. No more tattoos. That's all he did was quote uh, homegrown scripture. Well, anyway, uh, when the accuser comes, just quote scripture. That's what Jesus did. I, I think it's, it's good. It, it is your loaded gun. It's your armed guard. It's like your remote to change the channel on whatever's happening. It's your security alarm. It's not maybe the normal way that you would handle temptation. You might think, well, if I'm going to say no, I need internal fortitude. Or if I'm going to say no to this, I'm going to, I'm going to call my accountability partner before this gets out of control in my system. Or I'm going to tell myself I'm only human and I'm going to, like, cave. And no one will know. That's another way. Or, or you scare yourself into thinking that, 
I can't see him, I can't feel him, but I know God's watching. I know he's watching my hand go for the cookie jar, and so I, I just don't want to see that tape on Judgment Day. And, and you talk yourself out of it. Or in certain temptations, you can picture your wife or your husband, or picture your children, or picture your grandchildren, and turn. What is your strategy for overcoming temptation? What's your strategy when anger starts welling up in you? It, it pulls up into the lane right next to you and then it cuts into your lane and then pretty soon it, you feel like it's right in your car. What, what do you do? Well, Jesus' strategy would be just pull out Scripture. How about this? Ephesians 4. In your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. I think about that all the time. If I have a hot moment with Cynthia, and I mean not the good kind, uh, and I'm that couch, you know, it's God, that could accommodate me, right? It's long. I think, don't let the sun go down. That's just wrong. It's against the manufacturer's instructions, so we'll just work it out, and then she'll see the light before it's dark. But it's a simple Get away from that emergency situation. So when you're about to meet despair, say your salary, you know, it just didn't jump up, you know, it just, that half a percent increase just didn't happen. You can quote scripture, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Or when Satan tempts you to work late at night, what do you do? Oh, your, your kids are fine. They don't even want to talk to you anyway. Your wife, she's she just is happy to not see you. Or my husband, no. Uh, what do you do? Or, you know what? It's, this world is expensive, and I could really get a lot of work done on Sunday morning. What do you do? Proverbs 23. Maybe you just say this. Quote scripture. That's a temptation. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Or what about big worries that come your way when Satan says, do you have any idea what could possibly happen tomorrow? I mean, a new guy's taken over the company and your head is so close to the chopping block. Do you realize what tomorrow could be like in your life and how pivotal that could be? And you say, well, how about Matthew 6? 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so you work on today's problem, and tomorrow's might be a little less worrisome. Or you're in a hurry, and you want to fix someone else. Or you're in a hurry to, well, maybe even fix yourself. And you just can quote James, be patient, stand firm. The Lord's coming is, is near. Or Second Peter, the Lord's not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you. Or how about Ephesians 4? Be humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. You know, we got all these things like, just count to six before I answer. Count to ten. Breathe. Turn. Oh, leave the room. Collect yourself. Why not just say, be patient? 
Or we urge you, brother, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Everyone doesn't mean everyone, does it? I don't, I don't think so. James 5, 7, be patient. Oh, there it is again with brothers until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. What if you're facing an eye exam? The eye exam is coming up on the internet and you just got an opportunity to go there and you really kind of want to go there. What can you do? It threatens your walk with your family or your Lord and you can just... Just think about Job. I'll set no vile thing before my eyes. Done. Unplug it. Leave. When fear starts to grab you for no good reason, it just starts to paralyze you in your job or whatever, you can, you can go to Scripture. It's a temptation to be fearful. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer, Peter says. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So He's on your side. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, and it happens, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. So many verses about fear. Or when you're tempted to lash out at someone else's lifestyle. I was there with a church planter one time, and we were just having coffee in Fairfax. and There was a lady there, and Pants were riding a little low, and his were riding a little low, and her top was even lower. And this, I'm sure, a beautiful Christian, she, she went over to this couple, got up from our table and said, you guys are disgusting. Do you know that you're offending me, and you're offending God, and you are, you are in deep trouble. And I'd get your life ready, and I thought, well, anyway, it went on. It was a little more flowery than that. And both the couple, they were in, my friends, uh, they were in agreement. And uh, I was shocked. And I thought, I wonder how they'll do winning the lost. But when you're tempted to be that way, and it is tempting sometimes, those who oppose you, Paul said in Timothy, you must gently instruct them in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Be gentle with them. Treat them like your father, which really killed me because I, I wasn't always so gentle with them. Because it says they're captive. They're in the trap of the devil who's taken them. And So just, it's everywhere. Be gentle. Peter said, uh, give an answer for your faith, but do it gently and with respect. Or what about when you're tested to not be happy because you're not in happy times? You can quote Ecclesiastes. That's a temptation to grouse. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. So you're tempted to grumble? Paul says, don't grumble. Tempted to be negative? Start tearing someone else down to help build yourself up? Paul says, don't do it. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything at all is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Okay? It's a command. And so do it. So Jesus' way of addressing testing in the desert for 40 days was he used Scripture. That was all he did. Just... 
a simple plan. So whatever your struggle is, maybe you can find a verse in here that you can pull out and stick in front of your nose or tuck it into your mind. My wife has all these go-to verses for various scenarios in the middle of the night. And sometimes I don't. And I, I ask her, you got anything for this? I can't sleep. And she'll, she'll, she'll give me something. It's fantastic that way. She's got so much tucked in there. It's a great emergency strategy in the event that you need to get out of somewhere fast. It's sort of like all these FBI and police people and those people, they come into a room and we come in and I appreciate the color and some flowers and maybe some lights and I checking out the ambiance and stuff, but they're looking for the exits. And they're looking for a window that they could jump through. They're, they're just they're looking where their back is, if there's any door behind them. And they're fully aware of potential emergencies. And I like to be around those kind of guys. But that's sort of how we're supposed to be in life. We're, we're supposed to see potential situations. And, and I think that's what my hope is that Lent, this Lent, Lent 2013, you can come up with some emergency strategies, different things that you can tuck into your head, that you can meditate on, that when you certain emergency arises, you go straight to that verse. When Jesus was tested, when he was tempted, um, he quoted the Bible. It worked for him. It could work for you. And I think that is something to celebrate. Amen?